Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, James West, and joining me today is Dr. Eric Gardner to talk about his new book, Black Print Unbound, The Christian Recorder, African American Literature, and Periodical Culture. Eric's teaching and research interests focus on African American literature and culture and American literary history, and he is currently a professor of English at Saginaw Valley State University. His first monograph, Unexpected Places, Relocating 19th Century African American Literature, was released in 2009 and was awarded the Research Society for American Periodicals' prestigious book prize. His work can also be found in edited collections and journals such as American Literary History and Legacy, a journal of American women's writers. To find out more about his research, visit his personal website, blackprintculture.com. Black Print Unbound explores the development of the Christian recorder during and after the American Civil War. As the house organ of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the recorder held a national reach among 19th century African American communities. Through recovering the paper's history, Black Print Unbound offers an important intervention into the study of African American literary history and American print cultures during the 19th century. So I'd, I'd like to welcome Eric to the, to the show now. How are you doing, Eric? I'm good. Thank you so much for talking with me. That's okay. So we're happy to have you. Um, so if you'd like to introduce yourself to our listeners and just say a little bit about um, your academic background uh, and how you've come to, to this point to writing about the recorder. Sure, sure. Well, I, I've been doing archivally centered uh, uh, study of uh, 19th century African-American print culture for, I guess, more than two decades now. Um, and that sort of broad uh, uh, emphasis was motivated by a couple of things. Um, I did uh, uh, my doctoral work um, with Nina Baim, um, and so I was really sort of deeply enmeshed in the sense of uh, recovering 19th century women's literature uh, 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 and uh, um, simultaneously really sort of watching the beginning of the flowering some of the kinds of conversations that Henry Louis Gates and John Blassingame had, uh, uh, really sort of fascinating stories where they sort of sat down and said, well, if we really want to make African-American studies uh, 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 be able to fully enter the academy uh, uh, and enter classrooms, we need to have this uh, uh, slate of basic works, right, reference works, we need to have editions, we need to have bibliographies, um, and really saw some striking parallels between both of those types of recovery uh, 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 and recognized that uh, uh, that was really work that, that uh, I deeply wanted to do and, and was deeply interested in. Um, I think uh, uh, sort of you know, flowing from that, uh, a sort of growing recognition that, especially with 19th century African-American print culture, there was just so much that we did not know. Uh, um, and and uh, uh, John Ernest, who's uh, one of those, those scholars who I uh, uh, want to be like when I grow up, uh, um, writes about uh, how after finishing his doctorate in American literature, he felt like he had to really sort of educate himself all over again, almost get a sort of second doctorate by reading and looking and listening to other folks um, because we were not 
really getting the full story of what uh, kind of things were happening in African-American print and the 19th century. Um, and so uh, I really sort of immersed myself in, in sort of digging that up, sharing it with folks, talking about it with folks. Um, and one of the, I think, uh, recognitions that I came to maybe a decade ago, maybe a little bit longer, was that uh, one of the stories that wasn't being told was of the amazing geographic diversity of 19th century African Americans, um, that there were black presences basically uh, uh, spread across the nation uh, and certainly beyond the nation too um, that we just weren't talking about. And that led to uh, uh, my first monograph, which is uh, uh, titled Unexpected Places, Relocating 19th Century African American Literature. And the goal of that book was really to sort of lay out uh, uh, um, through some kinds of case studies, uh, a variety of different locations that were, uh, at least you know, within the, the, the standard disciplinary discussions, were totally unexpected. Um, and so there's a chapter on African Americans in uh, early 19th century St. Louis. There's a chapter on uh, uh, African Americans in California, uh, uh, a chapter on uh, black folks in Indiana, uh, and then a chapter on uh, uh, the Christian recorder <clears throat> uh, uh, and the ways that the recorder sort of had a national reach uh, rather than being just uh, a sort of local paper. Um, and the struggle and writing that book was a, a, a really quite early recognition that each of those individual case studies deserved at least a book and maybe several books on their own. Um, and so after uh, Unexpected Places came out, I really uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, took that call for next steps very seriously and, and sort of dug into thinking about what those chapters might grow into. Um, and uh, began to really be sort of deeply involved in thinking about uh, African-American literature and print culture in the West. Um, but as I was doing that work, and I'm still sort of doing that work, um, the material that I'd gathered on the Christian Recorder kept calling to me, uh, especially the uh, uh, collections of uh, um, subscription and uh, uh, acknowledgments. Uh, uh, they would, the uh, Christian Recorder every week would run lists of those who had submitted uh, uh, requests to be subscribers, right, funds to be subscribers, um, that had names and that had uh, places. Um, and so this was a moment where we could really sort of think about uh, not just who was writing for African-American periodicals, but who was, who was buying them, who was reading them. Um, and uh, those questions uh, uh, really just sort of took over a big chunk of my scholarly consciousness um, and eventually led to uh, uh, an article that came out uh, in American Literary History um, and then uh, I, I, um, towards serious drafting of uh, uh, the book that became Black Print Unbound. Um, so that's really sort of how, how, uh, how I got to the book. Um, <laughs> The funny thing is that, uh, um, so, I mean, it's a really large book. Um, the, I think the word count is over 140,000 words. Um, and I'm still convinced that there are all sorts of stories that need to be told about the periodical and all sorts of things that I still don't know. Um, so I'm still continuing to dig in. So you uh, you mentioned J uh, John Ernest and then, you know, people... Francis mm -hmm. Smith Foster is, is probably another person um, oh, who would be yeah. an inspiration. I mean, where where do you? I mean, do you, are there texts that you definitely see either this book responding to or kind of expanding on from it? Whether it's you, know, you mentioned Ernest or if it's Foster or somebody else. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I mean, I really see it as in deep conversation, um, and in some ways, uh, I, I hope a, a worthy extension of the work that Francis Foster um, and also scholars like Shanta Haywood have done in terms of thinking through the presence of uh, um, faith practices uh, as being central to uh, African American print culture. Um, among the, the 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 amazing number of uh, 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 you know, really compellingly uh, well-developed arguments that uh, Francis Foster has made. Uh, it's that we've really, uh, uh, much to our detriment, ignored the presence of uh, 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 Afro-Protestantism uh, in print culture generally. Um, and so certainly in some ways I, I viewed Black Print Unbound as being um, an answer to that that call. Um, I think, too, in, in you know, uh, uh, other kinds of ways, um, the book speaks to the kinds of work that uh, scholars like Carla Peterson, Joycelyn Moody have done in terms of thinking about uh, uh, how a range of African-American folks, uh, um, especially black women, um, who are oftentimes sort of written out of the, the scholarly record, um, really recognized that there were possibilities uh, uh, in print participation um, for it's really engaging in the kinds of community dialogues, public presences that uh, uh, the broader white dominated American culture just didn't allow. And so certainly speaking uh, 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 to those folks works uh, uh, too. I, I'd also add though, and you know, in some ways uh, um, the book is very consciously designed as a response to the field that um, well, for a long time we called it book history, um, and and now you know uh, I think the term uh, print culture studies is a, a bit more commonplace. But uh, um, book history has been really been white, um, to be blunt, uh, uh, and it's uh, been silent on a host of these kinds of issues. Um, and book history has oftentimes also been just that, book history. Uh, and one of my uh, sort of uh, uh, running arguments all the way through Black Print Unbound and also in, in much of my other research is that uh, we really need to think about the ways in which the bound book um, as an artifact uh, uh, seriously limited the number of folks uh, uh, um, you know, that we think about in terms of print culture, right? Not everyone could get the bound book out. Um, and not everyone wanted to get the bound book out for a variety of different kinds of reasons. Um, and especially for African-Americans, um, difficulties in finding uh, opportunities among mainstream white publishers uh, uh, for books, uh, um, but also uh, a real recognition that uh, sometimes books would not serve best serve their needs. Um, we really need to turn to black periodicals to think about the ways in which African-American folks in the North and sometimes in the South and certainly in the West uh, uh, used print to engage in a whole host of dialogues. Um, and so, Part of the book is also very consciously designed to sort of think about we can't just call it book history anymore. Um, and even when we widen it beyond uh, the boundaries of, uh, of the physical book, we really need to think about uh, uh, the various kinds of different folks um, who were engaged in, 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 in thinking about and in using print uh, to get a full, you know, a full sense of uh, uh, what 19th century print culture looked like. So you... Um... You made that case persuasively about the kind of neglect that, that periodicals, particularly black periodicals in the 19th century, um, have suffered. And, and you kind of give the comparison that you know it's, uh, a lot of attention gets put on the slave narrative um, and that you kind of link that to the notion of the book and the book mm -hmm. as this kind of almost like the highest form of, of pedagogical 
transmission or kind of educational intent or something like that. So it, what factors have, have led to that neglect? Is it, uh, is it purely just kind of a, an intellectual neglect by scholars? Is it that sources are, you know, as, as I'm sure you found yourself very hard to find, um, are scattered often? Um, you know, what factors make it difficult for um, these kind of periodicals to be recovered? Well, I think some of it is also deeply tied to, um, you know, the mechanisms of, of anthologies, um, the ways in which uh, 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 literature courses and especially surveys of uh, 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 surveys of American literature, for example, or surveys of Amer African American literature are are, are taught. Um, and you know, in some ways, it's uh, you know really sort of a. a, a, a I walk a fine line because I am so fascinated by so many slave narratives um, and the two slave narratives that are taught most often, uh, Douglas's, uh, Frederick Douglass's first uh, uh, narrative, 1845 narrative, uh, and Harriet Jacobs' uh, uh, Incidents of the Life of a Slave Girl that comes out finally in 1861. Every time I read those texts, they blow me away. They are amazing. Uh, uh, um, but and I think that that's you know uh, certainly why those texts and that genre one of the sort of central sets of reasons uh, uh, why those texts and that genre have uh, become uh, uh, such a mainstay of uh, uh, so many, especially college level courses, uh, and not just African American literature, but but in American literature. Um, Douglas's narrative is tour de force. Uh, I, I, you know, he's. Uh, uh, um, I commonly have students come up to me and say, "Well, you know." He's not Emerson. He's as good as Emerson. In some ways, he's better than Emerson. Um, he's different, and I'm so happy that I get to see that 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 kind of range. So there are all sorts of uh, uh, you know sort of uh, uh, things about those texts that make them sort of naturals uh, uh, to move into literature classrooms. By the same token, though, uh, um, and I guess just sort of saying that word token aloud um, marks the way that so many literature classes have to be taught. Right? If I have 15 weeks uh, uh, to teach uh, a survey of uh, American literature from the Puritans up to Reconstruction, perhaps, um, and I'm meeting with my students twice a week, an hour and a half a meeting, uh, and I'm describing my own survey here right now, um, there are a limited number of texts that I can teach and a limited number of issues that I can raise. And so the sort of easy way out is to say, well, we've got these couple of spectacular texts. They are available widely in good editions. Um, they're excerpted uh, uh, in great depth in, in existing anthologies. Maybe I should go for those, right? Um, and I think that uh, it's, it's out of our undergraduate classrooms uh, uh, that uh, graduate students gain introductions to the broader field. Um, and I think that really sort of, and it's, you know, out of the available books uh, that you can buy and have on your shelves or that you can put on your Kindle. Um, those are the texts, the ones that are available, are the ones that uh, folks begin their, uh, you know, serious scholarship with. Um, and so we really sort of, uh, uh, by limiting ourselves to those two texts, um, we, we've almost, you know, sort of synecdotically made them markers for all of 19th century African American print culture. Um, and wonderful as those texts are, that's just a massive problem um, because at first it's an oversimplification, right? There are all sorts of different uh, African-American texts floating around during this period. Um, but it's also an oversimplification in terms of subject matter, in terms of audience, 
uh, in terms of uh, 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 sort of material questions like circulations, of, you know, how, the, how these texts circulated, uh, um, all sorts of ways that uh, that narrowing of what African-American literature in the 19th century might be uh, uh, stop us uh, uh, from having a real sense of how black folks engaged with print and how white folks engaged with, uh, with black print, too. Um, so all of those features uh, add to what you've already alluded to, and that's that uh, uh, many of the texts that folks who are studying black periodicals uh, um, are beginning to look at now just simply aren't readily available, right? Uh, um, if I want to look at uh, the Christian Recorder simply as an example, the number of physical issues, paper issues, uh, uh, that are extant is tiny. Uh, and in fact, there's really only one extensive paper run uh, extant of the Christian Recorder um, from the period that the book covers uh, the area, the, 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 the years uh, of the Civil War and just after, just one extensive paper run. Um, and so I have to go to Philadelphia and visit Mother Bethel, um, African-American, uh, uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church uh, uh, that holds that, that run. I have to go there to see them uh, if I want to see the paper. Um, that paper run was microfilmed, um, and so there are a number of university libraries that have uh, that microfilm, but um, you can't really teach a class with a microfilm, right? Mm -hmm. uh, 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 you know, just, 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 just uh, uh, not manageable in that sense. Um, and the only way that I can access the Christian Recorder online is through uh, uh, a vendor who has a paywall up. And so if my university subscribes, um, or if uh, an organization I belong to subscribes, I have access to their version of that content. Um, but if I don't have access to the microfilm or if I don't have access to that online vendor's uh, 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 version of the recorder, I'm essentially out of luck because these texts are not available in anthologies. Um, there aren't print runs uh, that cover them. Uh, only a small number of uh, the texts in the recorder have been republished in any format at all uh, outside of uh, the ones that we've discussed. Um, and so simply the you know, sort of first difficulty is for, I think, lots of folks, um, including lots of folks who are currently in the AME church and really, really interested in their own you know, church history, uh, um, they just can't get to those texts. Um, so that obviously, I think, sort of limits uh, not just scholarship, but limits, uh, you know, limits the audience in some ways. Uh, uh, just sort of getting the texts out to people becomes uh, a centerpiece question. Um, because I think uh, most of us scholars uh, uh, writing about these subjects, before you read my work, um, I think Frances Foster would probably say this too, before you read her work, uh, um, and John Ernest would probably say this too, before you read his work, we really wish that you know, folks would be able to read those uh, uh, original texts, right? those primary documents, um, because it's by reading them that we entered the conversations. Um, and, and if you can't get to those primary texts, uh, then there are all sorts of uh, uh, limitations on the ways in which you can think about some of the questions that we're beginning to ask. Uh, so that uh, uh, really is a sort of, uh, in some ways, a sort of uh, a secondary motivating uh, factor in a lot of my scholarship and certainly in Black Print Unbound, I want folks to go back and read the recorder. It's fascinating. There are so many rich stories by so many different voices that are there that we just haven't heard at all before. 
Uh, and so certainly one of the goals in terms of thinking about uh, um, the various voices that are the various figures that are talked about in the recorder is to give uh, readers some introductions um, to point them to some authors and some texts uh, that hopefully then they'll be able to go in and dig in and read uh, and write all sorts of wonderful things about too. So um, let's give uh, our listeners a bit more of an introduction to to the newspaper in question here, the Christian sure. Recorder. Um, mm-hmm. If if you want to lay out kind of um, just the years that you that you talk about or focus on in this book, um, and say a little bit more about the newspaper, um, how it develops, uh, where it's based, things like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, well, the Christian Recorder uh, um, actually is still published today. Uh, it is the uh, longest-running uh, uh, African-American newspaper in the country, um, and it is now, as it uh, was at its founding, uh, the denominational paper of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Um, the AME Church really thought, began thinking about printing uh, uh, and print involvement almost as soon as it was uh, founded. Uh, um, relatively soon after Richard Allen became the first bishop of the AME Church. He also became the church's first book steward uh, and worked very diligently to move the church toward publishing uh, a church discipline, right? so a guideline for practice and for church law, um, as well as uh, a, a hymnal um, that could be used uh, uh, in a variety of different kinds of uh, worship services. And the AME Church rumbled for several years and actually did uh, uh, make some attempts at uh, starting up a periodical. Um, the AME magazine ran in the 1840s. Um, there were uh, uh, groups that were really sort of seriously thinking about uh, the possibility of a, of a weekly newspaper um, as early as the 1830s, although they did not make uh, much progress uh, until more than a decade later. Um, and so the church was always really sort of deeply thinking about the ways in which it could use print uh, to address what was really a growing national presence, right, that was divided uh, significantly by space. Um, And uh, uh, so finally, uh, uh, the church was able uh, in the late 1840s to uh, appoint a new book steward who had uh, uh, some deep interest in the possibility of uh, a newspaper. Uh, And uh, that uh, that book steward was able to acquire set of printing equipment. Um, interestingly, it was actually uh, printing equipment that had been owned by um, uh, Martin Delaney's newspaper, The Mystery, um, which is uh, Martin Delaney's sort of early radical uh, uh, thinker in terms of uh, uh, black politics. Later on, went to write a wonderful novel called Blake, as well as a variety of other different kinds of texts. Uh, he left The Mystery, and uh, as the paper was uh, beginning to fold. They decided to sell off the equipment. The recorder folks bought it um, and started publishing a newspaper called the Christian Herald. Um, And the Herald was published uh, um, relatively unevenly. We don't know much about it because there do not seem to be any copies extant. Um, At least if there are extant copies of the Christian Herald, we haven't found them yet. Um, But the Herald was published then on and off for a couple of years. And uh, 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 the intent was to make it a weekly paper. Um, the uh, General Conference of the AME Church, who was really sort of the supervising entity uh, of uh, all church functions, but especially this, this, uh, this church publication, um, voted to change its name to the Christian Recorder, um, the sort of current name. And again, the idea was that it should be a weekly. Um, throughout the 1850s, it had continuing financial problems. 
difficulty uh, uh, getting subscribers and getting the subscribers that have had to uh, to pay their uh, funds and, and uh, you know pay their funds expeditiously. Um, and so it really uh, uh, stopped and started, and then eventually finally stopped uh, almost completely uh, as we moved through the 1850s. Um, and then a fascinating set of events happened uh, uh, that really, I think, not only changed the face of the recorder, but changed the, the uh, uh, really the, the sort of face of uh, black print culture uh, generally. Um, and uh, this is where Black Print Unbound really sort of picks up the story in earnest. Um, Alicia Weaver, uh, who was uh, an AME minister uh, who was at that point stationed in Indianapolis, um, had been working on a church magazine um, that is amazingly understudied, uh, even though it's really rich, uh, really exciting. It's called the Repository of Religion and Literature and of Science and Art. Uh, it was a quarterly uh, uh, AME magazine. Um, and he had some real success with it. And so a variety of folks within the AME leadership thought, well, you know, maybe we can get Weaver uh, uh, to restart the recorder. Uh, and they brought him to Philadelphia, um, reassigned him, uh, uh, and uh, gave him as his charge uh, uh, the, uh, the goal of setting up the recorder as uh, the AME organ, right, uh, uh, and the, the – the way they envisioned that was that this would be a weekly newspaper um, that would connect members uh, of the AME Church across the country. It would contain uh, um, material that was tied to church policy and church practice, but it would also be a place where uh, um, church members could share in thinking about national news, current events, um, as well as uh, uh, gain some sense of uh, uh, literature, of the arts, of the various kinds of things that AME uh, members were involved in across the country. Um, and the, I guess it's really nothing short of amazing, but the amazing thing that uh, Weaver did is that uh, he was then able to start the paper um, and keep it running. And so uh, uh, starting with uh, issues in January of 1861, uh, uh, he continued to publish with a few exceptions uh, um, until he was uh, uh, eventually finally removed from the place from his place uh, in 1868, um, but uh, that removal did not stop the paper, um, and as I say, it's continued to this day, um, still as a weekly. Um, and uh, uh, under Weaver, the weekly paper was uh, four pages, so one large sheet uh, printed on both sides and then folded in half. Uh, after Weaver, uh, the paper grew in size, uh, changed shape a couple of times, uh, but it's, it's sort of basic uh, goals that, you know, to sort of link the uh, uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church connection through print, those have stayed the same all the way through. Um, and so Black Print Unbound uh, focuses very heavily on Weaver's years uh, uh, in and out of the editorial chair between 1861 and 1868. Um, first and foremost, because, uh, as I said, that's really a sort of centerpiece moment in, in the recorder. Um, but, of course, it's also a fascinating moment in terms of broader American history uh, and the ways print culture worked in that history, because uh, as Weaver was uh, starting the paper, uh, the uh, rumblings of the Civil War were we're already beginning, right? And so a few months into publication, uh, uh, he's uh, uh, he's publishing a newspaper um, that uh, uh, really sort of a nation that is split by a conflict like it had never seen before, uh, and. 
the news the recorder really in significant ways uh, uh, becomes a wartime newspaper um, and so you get to see a range of war news there um, lots of discussion about the kinds of things that the war might mean uh, for African Americans and how that war might be practiced what might happen after the war um, and then uh, uh, Weaver, as I say, continues on until uh, uh, 1868, uh, and so we really get to see uh, some of the glimmers about how the paper changes once the Civil War is over, once emancipation uh, becomes a national reality, uh, uh, and once uh, 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 the nation really sort of begins to think about what Reconstruction might look like. So it gives us a real window into the ways in which uh, a sort of large national community of African Americans were talking about really some of the most important historical events of the 19th century. So, so the book uh, uh, you know, really sort of thinks through those kinds of questions, um, and again, sort of does so in ways that look both at the paper as a material object, um, the business that was behind it, the way it circulated, the folks who read it, um, the people who advertised in it, um, but also really looks very consciously at the ways in which uh, uh, the kinds of texts that are appeared, right? The ways in which the recorder thought about uh, black print and black literature. And so black print also has then individual chapters that look at uh, 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 the idea of correspondence, right, the ways that uh, folks wrote letters into the paper, um, chapter that looks at uh, some of the poetry that uh, was regularly published in the recorder all the way through, uh, and a chapter that uh, looks at uh, a, a serialized novel that uh, the recorder decided to publish in 1865 uh, called The Curse of Caste uh, by an African-American woman named Julia Collins. Um, so the idea very much is to sort of think not only about uh, uh, the ways in which uh, uh, the paper circulated as a material object, but also the kinds of things that were, that were built in there. Let's talk about um, some of those chapters that, that you just mentioned, um, sure. starting with, with chapter four, which, which focuses on subscriptions and uh, subscribers. And, and you really, in this chapter, you, you really look to challenge um, kind of notions of, of who is reading uh, kind of 19th century black periodicals and, and where, these, where these periodicals are being read. So, um, first of all, in terms of the diversity of, of the newspaper's audience, um, you kind of put a challenge to this idea of, of black print being predominantly the kind of realm of, of the, the elite or, or the kind of higher class of, of um, black Americans during the 19th century. So, how do you how did you go about um, building you, you built this kind of uh, incredible sample of, um, of subscribers? Um, how did you go about uh, doing that. <laughs> here's, here's uh, I, in some ways, I think both the most uh, uh, mind-numbing and the most flat-out exciting work uh, of, of of writing Black Print Unbound, uh, sort of both embodied in one moment. Um, as I suggested uh, a little while ago, the, the uh, recorder um, each week uh, published a column, oftentimes simply headed acknowledgments, um, sometimes headed subscriptions or some variation thereof. Um, and the column listed off uh, uh, the names of the folks who had submitted funds uh, with requests to, to subscribe to the paper. Uh, and paired with their names uh, were the uh, cities from which they were writing or the towns from which they were writing. Um, and occasionally, uh, um, sometimes more than occasionally, depending on sort of which year we're looking at, but at, at least occasionally, um, 
the uh, 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 minister who solicited the subscription or who helped move the subscription forward to the recorder, that minister's name is also sometimes listed uh, as part of an acknowledgement of an individual person. Um, and, and as I say, uh, uh, those lists were really one of the things that called to me throughout the project because I think actually I, I would nudge even a little further than than, than your question. Right? We, we really have for a long, long time uh, in studies of black print culture uh, thought that, assumed that uh, black print was the the, the realm of uh, uh, a relatively small group of free African-American folks, mostly in the North, um, who had the resources and the time and the socio-political clout to participate in, in within that system, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to you know print as a sort of piece of the elite. But uh, uh, alongside that argument, uh, uh, um, that that assumption, um, we also, I think, for a long, long time, assumed that a number of the most, uh, you know, sort of most uh, 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 um, important or at least the best known texts in African American literature had largely white readerships, right? And so a lot of uh, the scholarship that focuses on Douglass's 1845 narrative um, really sort of recognizes that this is a text that was published uh, uh, by the major anti-slavery organization in the States at that time, and that it was designed very consciously uh, to be sold through their mail order distribution networks, but also to be sold as a souvenir at uh, the lectures that Douglas and other abolitionists were giving uh, across the country. Um, and all of those venues, uh, 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 the you know, great proportion, uh, uh, at least uh, the, so the assumption goes, the great proportion of folks who would get the text in those ways um, were white folks. Um, and as I began to look uh, at uh, uh, the folks on those lists, um, and when I say look, I mean really sort of uh, uh, dig through uh, uh, census records, government documents, uh, vital records, a host of uh, different ways of sort of finding who those folks might have been. I was repeatedly struck by the fact that uh, first they were almost all African American, and in, uh, in fact, the, the sort of in the final totals of the sample, um, and the sample includes every uh, 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 at least the sample that I began working from, every acknowledged name uh, uh, that was published in the recorder between 1861 and 1868 um, that are in the extant issues. Um, overwhelmingly, uh, uh, the subscribers who I was able to trace were African American. So the number worked out to be, depending on how you're counting, between 98 and 99 percent of those located subscribers uh, uh, were African American. Um, and then once you begin to sort of uh, uh, dig a little bit deeper into who they were, um, they were not always, uh, and in fact, oftentimes not members uh, of the elite. Um, they were uh, working class folks, um, and they had an amazing geographic range. Uh, they had uh, a real exciting range in terms of backgrounds, in terms of age. Um, it's oftentimes uh, uh, quite commonplace that there would be what seemed to be sort of family subscriptions, and so the sense that uh, a working class black family um, in central Illinois, right, might subscribe to the Christian Recorder for a year. Uh, that for me was really uh, um, a sea change in the ways in which I thought about uh, uh, the ways that black print might be able to move around the nation. Um, I, I mean, you want to talk about unexpected places. Uh, if you think about that, the, the, you know, the title of, 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 of my first book, uh, um, here were all of these African-American working class folks 
um, spread across the north and, in fact, uh, uh, moving relatively quickly into the south as soon as uh, the Union troops allowed that, um, and the west, uh, uh, um, who were reading poetry by uh, some of the best-known uh, African-American poets of, this, of the time, as well as some really uh, unknown African-American poets uh, uh, who are actually quite spectacular. Um, and they were reading uh, a serialized novel by a black woman writer, uh, and they were reading accounts of uh, black conventions. They were reading accounts of uh, church policy. They were reading letters from uh, uh, Henry McNeil Turner, who would later become a bishop in the AME Church, uh, but during the war years that we're talking about, uh, was a chaplain uh, for a Union regiment and was writing uh, uh, religiously uh, uh, in all senses of that word to the paper to talk about the kinds of things that, that black, black troops were doing. Um, so to find that, uh, 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 you know, to find that uh, sort of amazing group of folks, um, there was just a lot of, uh, uh, you know, basic good historian's work, right? So I went through every issue of the recorder that I could uh, uh, get my hands on. Um, I compared microfilm to online versions. Uh, occasionally got to consult uh, the, the physical paper versions. Um, and I compiled, compiled a sort of massive list of uh, uh, names, uh, noting the dates that they subscribed, uh, noting the cities that uh, the recorder listed for them, um, when I could get uh, a listing of a minister, uh, uh, um, you know, including that material. And then for each of those names, and by the end we're talking uh, more than 4,000, um, each of those names, uh, I ran them through um, <clears throat> Uh, uh, indices for uh, the 1850 census, the 1860 census, the 1870 census, and the 1880 census, uh, uh, federal government documents that uh, uh, purport to uh, uh, record, to enumerate all of the uh, uh, folks uh, uh, in the United States at any given moment. Um, and use those census records as uh, uh, then a springboard to uh, looking at other kinds of vital records, uh, to looking at city directories, uh, to looking at a range of other kinds of texts. Um, and so, you know, painstakingly, uh, um, person by person, uh, uh, looking for the name of the acknowledged subscriber uh, and seeing if I could uh, uh, find information on them, basic demographic information that might, uh, might tell us a little bit more about who they were. Um, and it's a process, as I say, that uh, took more hours than I care to think about. Um, but also, uh, um, in really fascinating ways, was was quite joyous um, because so many of them, uh, uh, it was possible to find some details of their lives. Um, and it was uh, possible then to begin to build a picture of what... Uh, um, folks reading uh, uh, black periodicals in the middle of the 19th century might look like. Um, and it was a picture that wasn't at all like the one that we had been given. Um, as I say, that sort of wide range in class, uh, a real sort of deep uh, 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 similarity uh, in terms of race. Um, and uh, um, really sort of other exciting pieces, um, a, a vast number of quite young readers um, or readers who had young children in their homes. Uh, real significant presence by uh, of, of, uh, of African American women among the reader sample, um, and so to you know build this collection of uh, records on individual people um, and recognize that in addition to a whole bunch of fascinating individual stories, 
there was a larger collective story here um, that was not represented in the scholarship, um, became more and more exciting. Um, and in the end, it also became uh, um, much more difficult, too, because uh, <laughs> recognizing that uh, the, 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 you know, the sample of readers that I had and the information that they were telling me uh, uh, really sort of meant that I had to think force myself to rethink how I was reading the paper's content. And so uh, the close readings of various forms of texts that are uh, uh, in Black Print Unbound are deeply shaped by my sense of who was actually reading, who was actually subscribing. Uh, but it also demanded that I sort of take some steps back and think about how the paper made it to those folks, right? And so what kinds of uh, church politics and local politics, uh, national politics were involved, uh, who the editors were at different points and what kinds of things they were doing, um, who the printers were, uh, where their operations uh, were housed, uh, um, how they supported themselves, all of those kinds of questions, even uh, sort of how did uh, you know a subscriber in a given location get his or her copy of the recorder? So really, you know, with that large and very surprising sample of readers, uh, I had to really sort of think about, okay, well, if these are the readers, then how did they get the paper? Um, and what did they find there? So you mentioned there kind of um, not just being able to kind of delve into the individual lives of, of these uh, these different readers, but also kind of seeing um, subsections of readership. And in Chapter 5, you, you focus on two um, particular ones, these uh, soldiers or readers who are soldiers and then um, women. Mm -hmm. And um, you kind of build uh, not just, obviously, the dialogue that happens between the newspapers and, and readers, uh, such as soldiers or, or women, but also the dialogue that happens between readers themselves. Um, so how uh, or why did you decide to focus on those two groups and um, what kind of obstacles or challenges did they have um, in terms of both accessing the recorder and then in terms of this, this dialogue, this exchange in terms of reading and writing? Oh, that's an exciting question. Um, I, I, I think uh, uh, there was always uh, from the start of the project, from before the project, uh, a set of questions that led me to think about the ways in which black women uh, uh, might figure in here. Um, uh, I think in part, again, uh, uh, you know, we could trace it to uh, graduate training. We could trace it to uh, a deep and abiding interest in the ways in which uh, broader American culture has uh, uh, pushed women to the sidelines, uh, you know, very consciously trying to ignore women's concerns, to dismiss them out of hand, uh, uh, to keep them out of uh, the public discourse, uh, 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 even though obviously they have uh, uh, so much uh, uh, to add, so much richness. Um, and, you know, a, a number of the texts that were being recovered as I was, uh, you know, coming up in the field, uh, uh, really sort of hinted at just the amazing possibilities uh, uh, in terms of Black women's literary texts of the period, uh, and also a bit more quietly, albeit uh, uh, hinted at uh, the importance of Black women as readers of Black print, uh, as supporters of Black print throughout the 19th century. And so that group, I, I think, in some ways was was always one that I knew that I wanted to explore. Um, that said, uh, I, uh, as I began to sort of dig into the recorder, it became apparent that there was no way that you could study the paper without talking about African-American women as readers uh, uh, and as supporters of the, the periodical in, in, in crucial ways. Um, 
it was really uh, uh, black women who time and time again uh, saved the paper uh, from financial straits. Um, it was uh, black women who time and time again uh, uh, um, helped Alicia Weaver uh, uh, do a whole host of tasks. Um, we should, you know, get on the table too immediately that uh, uh, Alicia Weaver's first wife, Mary, um, it looks like from the bits of extant suggestions that we have, um, oftentimes ran the paper, um, if not uh, 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 all of its content, ran the material operations of the paper when Weaver was absent. Um, she's someone who appears nowhere in African-American literary history and yet uh, is really a sort of critical figure. Um, but there are a whole bunch of folks who, women folks who, like Mary Weaver, uh, were essential to the paper. So I wanted to really sort of think about them. Um, now, of course, that, that does, as you've suggested, uh, pose some obvious difficulties. Uh, one of the sort of central uh, uh, immediate ones is that uh, um, the ways in which uh, uh, naming practices, uh, uh, especially 19th century naming practices, in terms of uh, uh, records of women uh, uh, make searching difficult uh, uh, is, is, is probably, you know, sort of jumps to mind immediately. Um, 19th century American uh, culture, uh, a woman is married, she takes her husband's last name. And so all records after that marriage bear her husband's last name and very, very few of those records. So let's say census records, for example, no mention in the census record of what a maiden name might look like. Uh, um, and so no idea really of who that woman might have been prior to the marriage. Uh, and so there are a, a whole host of difficulties that are very specifically tied to that practice of uh, um, having the husband's name foisted upon their identity, right, uh, uh, and uh, changing the ways in which they appear in, in the records. Um, I think there are a host of other kinds of questions, too, uh, um, some of which are tied to the difficulties women faced, and especially black women faced, in terms of uh, any kinds of public engagement. Uh, I, um, I can't begin to talk about the the number of ways the dominant white culture tried to keep black women completely out of uh, uh, those those public discussions, any public discussions at all. Um, and so the women who were interacting with the recorder uh, faced those things on a daily basis, whether it was uh, walking to the post office where the postal official was going to be white um, and was not going to be enthusiastic about circulating a black newspaper to anyone, um, and who was likely to be quite rude uh, uh, to a black woman, uh, especially coming into uh, that, that very, very white, very, very male, very, very public space. Um, so a host of uh, uh, difficulties that they, they would have had simply participating there. I, I, I picked for the, the second group, um, African-American soldiers, um, in part because uh, uh, one of the sort of lessons that you learn relatively quickly in reading the recorder of the period is just how many uh, black soldiers were writing letters to not only the Christian recorder, but also to uh, some of the other newspapers, uh, black newspapers of the period, like the Weekly Anglo-African. Um, these were folks who were really taking on uh, what they saw as a twin duty to their nation and to their race. 
oftentimes at gigantic risk. Um, if we think about something like the Fort Pillow massacre, where uh, uh, black uh, uh, prisoners, uh, Union black prisoners, are uh, massacred by a Confederate general um, after they have uh, 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 surrendered, um, so killed under that white flag, right? Um, they know the risk, um, and for most of the war, they're not even being paid at an equivalent rate to white troops. Um, they're not receiving any of the kinds of resources that uh, some white units are getting. Um, and so they really are, uh, uh, um, you know, in all sorts of ways, making tremendous sacrifices uh, uh, for, based on oftentimes deeply held convictions. So they wanted to share uh, uh, their stories with folks. And the black press, especially the Christian Recorder, gave them a way to do that. Uh, and so the Recorder's uh, uh, pages are literally filled with letters from uh, uh, black soldiers, uh, um, f again, folks from uh, uh, across the country uh, uh, writing about a real range of different kinds of experiences, and also, uh, especially as uh, uh, the war continues, really making uh, um, some, some, some definite cases, really actively participating in arguments about uh, what the results of the war should be. Right? What should uh, what should happen uh, uh, to black folks, uh, and what should black folks be able to do after the Civil War is over? Um, there's a, a stunning line in the um, National uh, uh, Black Convention held in Syracuse in 1864, um, and there's a stunning line in uh, the uh, address that the convention uh, uh, agreed to have published. Uh, um, that goes something like, uh, uh, are we uh, good enough only for bullets or to use bullets and uh, not good enough to use ballots? Um, and black soldiers writing to the recorder really wanted to emphasize that uh, this kind of public service uh, uh, um, emphasized how much they deserved right uh, uh, the, the, the rights that were uh, uh, granted to any citizen of the United States um, and so they're writing the presence of the recorder uh, and really they're sort of uh, much larger import in terms of American history and Civil War history uh, were very very striking and so I wanted 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 to get their voices uh, uh, in the book uh, um, for those reasons too um, certainly your your use of correspondence is, is one of the the most striking um, and in many ways, original elements of the book. Um, unfortunately, we won't be able to kind of talk in detail about some of the particular people um, that you talk about, although if listeners are interested in, in looking up the text, uh, Edmonia Highgate, um, and as a figure certainly that has an extraordinary story. Um, how do you, like, what's your process of, of choosing? So obviously you have this sample, you have this, this, this array of, of each of these people could have an incredible story and, and what's uh, the process by which you decide like, which people or which readers you include um, in, in the book and, and maybe there were readers that you weren't able to focus on here that you left out that you, you really wanted to. Um, so if you could say a little bit about that. Yeah, there are, and, 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 and maybe processes plural, um, because, uh, uh, you know, certainly some of the selections, the selection of uh, focused on, on uh, African-American women, the focus on uh, African-American soldiers in terms of thinking about folks who were reading and writing for, for the paper, uh, um, you know, were guided by uh, a whole host of uh, questions tied to important issues in American history, American literature, um, and the kinds of arguments that the book wanted to make. And so certainly that guided some of the selection of, of uh, texts, writers, subjects. Um, but there were also moments where um, 
to be honest, uh, a given writer's work um, just had me sitting in my chair stunned. Um, and I would go back then to that author's work, Ebony uh, um, Hygate, who you mentioned, uh, an amazing uh, black woman teacher uh, who was deeply interested in American transcendentalism and wrote with a sort of transcendentalist ethos, gets uh, uh, talked about significantly in the book. Uh, um, I would go back to her work, and the question that I would have, the second read and the third read and the fourth read was, is this really as good as as amazing as I thought it was the first time I read it, and and repeatedly, right, I, I I would come back and say, yeah, yeah, it really is, and so Highgate's story has to be in the book. Um, certainly, uh, uh, this was uh, that that sort of whole. Uh, um, group of factors uh, led to some of the focus in uh, uh, the chapter in Black Print Unbound that focuses uh, on poetry broadly, but especially on the use of the elegy uh, in the paper. Um, and there's um, an amazing elegy that uh, George Boyer Vachon wrote uh, uh, to his uh, young daughter. Um, and the poem is called In the Cars. Um, and it's a poem that uh, uh, um, I mean, anytime you're mourning the loss of a child, that in and of itself is 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 is, is such an impossible task, right? It's an unresolvable grief uh, uh, when when you know you're thinking about the loss of a child. Um, and Vachon's poem uh, in the cars does it with such thought and such beauty uh, um, and such amazing power uh, um, that every time I go back to the poem, I. I, I you know, I have to read the poem all the way through, um, and I have to have some, you know, sort of quiet, just think time afterwards. Uh, it's just one of those poems that uh, uh, reaches out and grabs you and, and does not let go for a long, long time after you set the page down. Um, and so, you know, did, did, did Vachon in some ways probably need to be in the book uh, because he's an important African-American poet, um, because he's uh, a real major figure in African-American activism uh, and in terms of African-American education reform. Um, does he need to be in the book because uh, uh, um, he's really representative of a whole strain of uh, uh, African-American uh, 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 um, sort of longtime activists who participate in the recorder's print culture? Um, does he need to be in there because he's a name that folks might recognize who were in, uh, uh, who were doing, you know, thinking about black studies in other ways? Yeah, for all of those reasons, Vashon uh, 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 probably would have uh, come into the book at least uh, in some fashion, um, but. There is also just simply the raw power of that poem, um, the ways in which it continues to affect me to this day, uh, um, that, that really sort of said, there's, there's no way that you can write this book um, without talking about that poem. Right, just this, there's no way that you can write this book without uh, uh, talking about Edmonia Highgate's letters, um, because those are texts that uh, uh, um, uh, um, we should all be reading, right? Um, and and not just sort of my uh, testimony there, but uh, when I teach those texts, my students' responses to them repeatedly are, uh, uh, um, you know, oh, this is, this is an amazing text. Um, and actually, some of my students then become quite angry because uh, uh, the, the immediate question becomes, well, why did we never hear of this before, right? Why was this not a text that we read in high school? Why was this not a text that we've seen in any of our anthologies? Why is this not uh, uh, something that we know? Um, and so, you know, sort of thinking about some of those texts and authors uh, uh, that just uh, reached out and shook me um, and that I thought would uh, reach out to other folks in similar ways uh, shaped the decisions on some of the stories that, uh, that made it into the book. 
And continuing that kind of theme of um, undiscovered or, or neglected texts, uh, you, you finish the book um, talking about Julia Collins and The Cursed Cast, uh, which is a kind of recently rediscovered uh, novel which was originally serialised in the recorder, and, and it really helps to tie together um, a couple of the, the main themes which are going through the text, um, obviously one of them being the kind of recovery of African-American women writers um, in different forms, and then also this this challenge or this attempt to complicate um, that idea of, of uh, book history or, or print culture or the relationship between kind of periodical and, and book or bound and unbound forms of print. Um, so just talking about this, this final chapter, um, first of all, how significant, how symbolic, um, how important is Collins, the serialization of Collins' work? Uh, and then also how does... Um, as an example, it, it speaks to that kind of complication or that attempt to complicate um, ideas of 19th century print and print culture. Well, I guess to think about the the first piece there, and in all sorts of ways, Collins's novel is uh, uh, massively important to thinking about black literature, thinking about American literature just generally. I think too, uh, um, there's you know sort of ongoing debate about uh, what the first uh, uh, novel by an African American might be. Uh, some folks argue that it's Hannah Craft's Bond Woman's Narrative, uh, uh, although that's a book that was uh, uh, never published uh, uh, until the 21st century, right, a period, you know, we have that only in manuscript. Um, some folks argue that it might be Harriet Wilson's Arnig, um, which is a, a spectacular book published in 1859 um, that has very, very uh, heavy uh, autobiographical tones and content in it, um, and some, some debate about whether it's an autobiographical novel or a novelized autobiography. Um, Collins's text, though, it's clearly a novel. Um, and it was published uh, uh, in the author's lifetime. Um, it did not appear in book form until, again, the 21st century. Um, but it did uh, uh, move its way through um, channels of editing uh, uh, into print uh, that then was widely dispersed and, and widely read and, and, and commented upon. Um, and so certainly, uh, 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 you know, again, if you sort of think about uh, things that a uh, book on the Christian recorder of this period uh, – you have to talk about uh, a cursive cast uh, simply because it is uh, because of its uh, firstness, um, because of its uh, sort of marked place and and sort of the development of, of African American print. Um, but beyond those, those those kinds of you know reasons that suggest you have to, again, that's one of those texts that uh, I, I hope gets a, a much wider readership um, because it is uh, uh, really quite amazing in, in all sorts of ways. Um, and I, I, um, I wanted to highlight a sort of set of those questions in the, in the reading of the book. Uh, there's been a, a great deal of uh, really good discussion on the ways in which the, the, the novel treats questions of gender and treats questions of uh, a nation, and treats questions of uh, black education. Um, but uh, a lot of that uh, work has focused on the protagonist, um, who, without giving too much away, uh, um, is not clearly associated with uh, uh, the free black community until relatively late uh, uh, in the novel. And I sort of wanted to step back and say, well, okay, so who is the free black person or who are the free black people um, in cursive caste? Um, the people that uh, uh, this 
largely African-American readership of the Christian Recorder uh, uh, might sort of immediately uh, uh, say, oh, yeah, uh, 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 there's a character um, who, in terms of demographics, right, has, has some similarities to my life. And, and the answer there was uh, a character named Juno, who is uh, the protagonist's caretaker, uh, uh, really sort of raises her, uh, uh, guides her as much as she possibly can, um, and then later in the novel becomes really quite crucial uh, to the story, not only in terms of the care that she has for the protagonist, but also the kinds of information that she has gathered uh, uh, on some of the secrets that are shaping the protagonist's uh, life, that are shaping the sort of key plot events in the novel. Um, and so really sort of thinking about the novel through the lens of free African-American readers, free African-American characters, uh, uh, was, a, a, again, a story that I wanted to begin sort of thinking through, uh, um, you know, the sense of uh, what a black newspaper might do in terms of choosing black literature that it was going to then uh, uh, hand to, 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 to black readers. Um, so that sort of shaped the, the emphasis on that chapter, but also was really in lots of ways uh, a reason that uh, I wanted to make sure that, that Julie Collins, that the cursive cast uh, uh, were in the book. Um, it's a rollickingly good, rollickingly, rollickingly good novel, um, just first off. Um, and it also sets out a whole set of uh, uh, fascinating questions beyond those that we've talked about so far, because uh, Collins died before the serialization was completely published. We don't know if she actually finished the novel and the chapters just didn't appear in the paper, or didn't get to the editors of the paper, or if she simply didn't finish it uh, uh, before she passed away. But So we've got uh, an unfinished novel. Uh, um, all sorts of speculation on how the novel might have ended, uh, um, uh, including uh, um, uh, some some real scholarly debate, um, and uh, uh, that in some ways I think sort of emblematized uh, uh, a set of the questions that were really sort of crucial uh, to thinking about the Christian Recorder and to thinking about black periodicals more generally. Right? What? How do we? How do we access uh, uh, um, stories that we have only in fragments? Right? How do we deal with an archive that we know has been uh, uh, both consciously and unconsciously limited by a whole host of outside uh, uh, forces? Um, how do we write uh, 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 scholarship about uh, uh, things that are incomplete but that are still of massive value that really we still need to talk about? Um, and so in lots of ways, uh, uh, Cursive Cast became uh, the, the, the sort of place where I thought uh, – uh, uh, the the book should uh, um, I don't want to say end because the book is still with me and I'm still sort of thinking about what the next chapters would be right um, but where the book would at least pause uh, um, to sort of step back and reflect on uh, uh, what some of the key questions are in terms of thinking about the ways in which we access and 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 approach black print culture in the 19th century. It is um, and you know incredibly dense text and uh, unfortunately we're we're pretty much out of time for this interview so you know there's so many other avenues that we could explore um, individual kind of readers individual writers um, if listeners are kind of want to uh, learn more about your work um, where would be the best places that, that they could go I'm always busy, um, so so lots of stuff in the works. Um, I have a piece in the uh, most recent issue of Legacy, which is one of my favorite journals, um, that uh, is part of a forum that focuses on uh, the sort of root question is where are the women in black print, print culture studies? Uh, so, so that would be a, sort of a good primer in some ways. Um, I have a website and a, a blog uh, that uh, folks can access at blackprintculture.com. 
Um, that's one word, blackprintculture.com. Uh, um, and so I blog on some of these questions. There's a lot of stuff uh, that in the blog um, that are uh, things that didn't quite make it into the book, but that were still fascinating. Um, and then uh, uh, I'm, I'm involved in uh, early stages of uh, what I think promises to be a really exciting project in terms of thinking about African-American uh, literary history that uh, Cambridge University Press uh, is undertaking. Uh, it'll be a multi-volume uh, uh, literary history of uh, African-American print. Um, the sort of large series title will be African-American Literature in Transition. And Joycelyn Moody, who's uh, another one of those scholars who uh, I want to be like when I grow up, a wonderful model in all sorts of ways, uh, is going to be the general editor. Uh, and I'll be editing the volume on uh, black literature and reconstruction. Um, so sort of thinking about uh, uh, new approaches to the ways in which we talk about African-American texts and questions that ran during that period. So uh, look for that uh, uh, on the shelves, hopefully, before, uh, before too much longer. That's great. It's, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Pleasure to talk to you too. Thank you so much. That's okay. Goodbye. You've been listening to New Books in African American Studies, part of the New Books Network. Support for the network is generously provided by Amherst College Press. For more information, go to newbooksnetwork.com where you can subscribe via iTunes or follow on Facebook and Twitter. Goodbye. Thank you.